Warning. Binge mode contains adult content. How about death? Is death adult enough for you? It is. How adult is that? So if that's not your thing, you don't want to remember Cedric, that's fine. You check out uh, one of our other fine podcasts like uh, Bachelor Party, which is cheerful cheerful and not adult at all. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know what the seventh trunk key unlocks, (laughs) please proceed with extreme caution. And now, binge mode. I tell you now, take the steps I have suggested and you will be remembered in office or out as one of the bravest and greatest ministers of magic we have ever known. Fail to act and history will remember you as the man who stepped aside and allowed Voldemort a second chance to destroy the world we have tried to rebuild. Insane. Whispered Fudge, still backing away. Mad. And then there was silence. Madame Pomfrey was standing frozen at the foot of Harry's bed, her hands over her mouth. Mrs. Weasley was still standing over Harry, her hand on his shoulder to prevent him from rising. Bill, Ron, and Hermione were staring at Fudge. If your determination to shut your eyes will carry you as far as this, Cornelius, said Dumbledore, we have reached a parting of the ways. You must act as you see fit, and I, I shall act as I see fit. Welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. Woo! I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. What a great website. It's freaking great. Great. And let me tell you, we've been bringing the smoke lately, too. We've been hitting it hard. Please check out TheRinger.com, where all manner of incredible content is happening every day. That was beautiful. Thank you. Joining me today, now that he's finished touting TheRinger.com and showing Corn Fudge something on his arm. It's Ringer staff writer. Your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Corny. It's not as clear as it was an hour ago when it burned black, but you can still see it. Binge mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether you're with Fudge or Dumbledore during the parting of the ways, as Dumbly so politely put it, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us five points, five stars for binge mode. Also, Feel free to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. And join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans, which is an excellent place to check in with Fred and George on how they're spending Harry's winnings. I don't need them. I don't need I barely need it anyway. We all could use some laughs and a return on our investments. (laughs) (laughs) Yesterday on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how a loss of innocence shapes chapters 31 through 34 of Goblet of Fire. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapters 35. <laughs> chapters 35 through 37 of Goblet. Mm. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. Deep details from all seven books and eight films in the wider Potter canon. Wide. Taking the entire series into account from the moment we return to the mm. maze. So grab Winky, get your question list set, because it's time to drink some Veritaserum. Mm. 
That's your Robin Aaron <laughs> breast milk sound. My goodness. Well, both are the milk of truth. <laughs> if it be known, <laughs> tightly controlled by the ministry. Mal? Yeah? You know what I must ask you to do, if you are ready, if you are prepared? I am. Then good luck, because it's time to offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Goblet chapters 35 to 37 while climbing aboard this scarlet steam engine of plot, the Hogwarts Express. Harry, gripping Cedric and the Portkey Cup, returns to Hogwarts. There is chaos and confusion as the shocking news of Cedric's death spreads. Bart Eye spirits Harry away from the scene to his office, where the details of Voldemort's plot are finally revealed. Albus Dumbledore arrives to subdue the imposter, who we learn is Barty Crouch Jr. 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 And the whereabouts of the real Mad-Eye Moody are discovered at last. These revelations lead to a schism between Dumbledore and his supporters on one side and Cornelius Fudge and the Ministry on the other. This separation will grow worse in coming days. The battle lines are drawn. At the closing feast, an emotional Dumbledore eulogizes Cedric, tells the students that Voldemort is back, and urges them to band together to fight him. On the train home, Hermione reveals, guess what? I figured out how Rita Skeeter was getting all these scoops. Turns out, She's an unregistered animagus moron, this in the restricted section. Hermione has her in a jar. Cozy. I mean, it's not great, but it's better than Azkaban. <laughs> I mean, that's, There's a stick that's and a true. leaf in there. It's all relative. <laughs> Finally, after staking Fred and George's joke shop business with his tournament winnings, Harry steals himself for the challenges to come. Jason, it is my belief, Yes. however, that the truth is generally preferable to lies and that any attempt to pretend that binge mode died as the result of an accident or some sort of blunder of its own is an insult to this podcast. That's right. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters 35 through 37, the final chapters of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, is Truth. Chapter 35, Veritaserum. Mm, delicious. Again, <laughs> Harry slams into the ground and he's back at Hogwarts, clutching the cup and the lifeless body of Cedric. From the book, he felt as though he would slide away into the blackness gathering at the edges of his brain if he let go of either of them. And he's inundated with sounds, voices, footsteps, yelling. Screaming, oh, he's back. Who's, what, what is that, Cedric? A pair of hands turn him over as a voice shouts his name and he opens his eyes and sees Dumbledore. He lets go of the cup, but he can't let go of Cedric. With his free hand, he grabs Dumbledore's wrist and whispers, he's back, he's back, Voldemort. Very first words out of Harry's mouth after this terrible ordeal is the truth. He knows how pressing it is, how imperative it is that Dumbledore and the Ministry hear this right away and right on cue, Corn Fudge approaches. What's going on? What's happened? My God, Diggory, Dumbledore is dead. Thanks. Thanks, Minister. Wow. Fucking genius over here. Fudge's words filter through the crowd and Harry's aware of the news rippling outward. He's dead. He's dead. Cedric Diggory, dead. Fudge tries to pry Harry's grip on Cedric loose, but it's no good. Dumbledore says, Harry, you can't help him now. It's over. Let go. Harry explains that Cedric asked him to bring his body back to his parents. And Dumbledore bends down and from the book, with extraordinary strength for a man so old and thin, raised Harry from the ground. Dumbledore doesn't want to let Harry out of his sights, but Fudge reminds him that Cedric's parents are here and we need to 
talk to them right away. It would be wrong for them to learn this news secondhand. They have to go speak to them. And Amos is coming over. Dumbledore tells Harry, stay here. And then an unidentified voice says, it's all right, it's all right, I've got you, come on. Harry tries to stay. It's what Dumbledore wanted him to do, to stay right here. But no, someone's carrying him away. It's Moody. He asks what happened, and Harry tells him about the Porky, the graveyard, Voldemort. Moody keeps pushing, keeps asking for more. The Dark Lord got his body back, yes. He He's returned. Harry is explaining that the Death Eaters came and that they dueled. You dueled with the Dark Lord? The Dark Lord. The sobriquet used by Voldemort's followers. These mm-hmm. questions, the tone of them, the decision to remove Harry from Dumbledore's gaze. Why? Mm-hmm. Harry continues explaining that his wand did something funny, he says. And Moody pushes Harry into his office and forces him to drink something peppery that helps Harry regain some of his focus. Moody is frantic, trying to collect these details, desperately attempting to piece together the truth. I need to know exactly what happened, he says. And then he uses Voldemort's name. What is going on here? When Harry gets to the ritual and Moody asks what Voldemort took from Harry, and Harry says blood, this is the description we get. Moody, quote, let out his breath in a long, low hiss. Moody then asks the strangest question yet. How did he treat them? Meaning the Death Eaters. Yeah. Did he forgive them? Now, rereading with clarity. Every moment, every comment plays on numerous levels. When you're going through the first time, however, this is the record scratch moment. Really. Why would Moody ask this? Harry tries to rise, remembering suddenly during the course of this part of the conversation that there's a Death Eater here at Hogwarts, lamenting that he didn't tell Dumbledore straight away. But Moody pushes him back in his seat. I know who the Death Eater is, he says. Here it comes. Truth at last. But who is it? Is it Karkaroff? Harry asks. And Moody issues an odd laugh as he reveals, no, 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 Karkaroff fled when he felt the dark mark burning. The Death Eater... Too cowardly to return, confirmed. But if Karkaroff's gone, that means he's not all in. He's not the one. He didn't put Harry's name into the Goblet of Fire. No, said Moody slowly. No, he didn't. It was I who did that, and Harry heard but didn't believe. My good friend, <laughs> Mad Eye Moody. My good friend, Alistair. My good friend, <laughs> Harry does the only thing he can do in this moment. He calls This is a lie. He wants to have heard wrongly. He wants to have misunderstood. No, you didn't. You didn't do that. You can't have done. My good friend, Alistair. (laughs) Moody's eye swings toward the door, and then Harry knows. He's looking to see if anyone's going to come to the door. Moody points his wand at Harry and asks, again, if Voldemort forgave the Death Eaters. And Harry looks at the wand thinking, this has to be a bad joke. My good friend, Alistair, could not be doing this right now. (laughs) This has to be anything but the truth, because Mad-Eye, famed or afraid... Friend of Dumbledore, wizard responsible for filling so many cells in Azkaban, can't really be pointing his wand at Harry Potter, speaking lovingly, really, of the idea of serving the Dark Lord. I asked you, said Moody quietly, whether he forgave the scum who never even went to look for him, those treacherous cowards who wouldn't even brave Azkaban for him, the faithless, worthless bits of filth who were brave enough to cavort in masks at the Quidditch World Cup but fled at the sight of the dark mark when I fired it into the sky. My friend Alistair, why are you speaking like this? (laughs) Normally you just put me under the imperious curse. It's always so pleasant. What's happening here? Sometimes, as a reader or a viewer, it can be hard to relate to the hero. 
Sometimes it is almost impossible to put yourself in the chosen one's shoes and honestly contemplate how you'd respond to facing a dragon or discovering a prophecy about your destiny or hearing the most feared sorcerer in the world say that you have one hour to turn yourself over to him. But here, right now, just for one moment, we are all Harry, trying desperately to grasp onto one iota of comprehension and truth. What are you talking about, Harry says, speaking with a million voices. And as the gash of a mouth opens across from him, it says, I told you, Harry, I told you. If there's one thing I hate more than any other, it's a Death Eater who walked free. They turned their backs on my master when he needed them most. I expected him to punish them. I expected him to torture them. Tell me he hurt them, Harry. Moody's face was suddenly lit with an insane smile. Tell me he told them that I, I alone, remained faithful, prepared to risk everything to deliver to him the one thing he wanted above all. You. Think about what he's saying there. My master. I alone remained faithful. We have left the realm of concerning questions and illusions. There is no ambiguity left at this point. The man across from Harry is the loyal Death Eater Voldemort mentioned having at Hogwarts. And we have entered full-on confession mode. He put Harry's name into the Goblet of Fire under a different school. I believe you said North Carolina last time. Shouts, yeah. shouts to the Tar Heels. <laughs> he guided Harry toward winning the tournament. Keep the enemies away, nudging Hagrid to show Harry the dragons, helping Harry figure out how to actually beat his dragon. He punctuates every point of this confession with an emphatic, I did. This two-word scalpel slicing away through repetition at any remaining doubt that we have. Moody tells Harry, well, listen, you think it's easy getting your fucking little boy ass through these three tasks, you think that was easy? Yeah. Getting your name in the goblet was easy. The rest of this is, was crazy hard, <laughs> as Flora would tell you. <laughs> he needed to, he needed Harry to struggle enough to avoid arousing Dumbledore's attention, but right. do well enough to get to the maze, ideally with a head start. And then once you're in the maze, hey, he did some extra stuff there as well. We'll find out more about that in a bit. He says, then I knew I would have a chance of getting rid of the other champions. Who else have we heard speak this way as though human beings are just obstacles? Voldemort, of course, called Cedric the Spare. Shells like Bertha that expire after serving a purpose. Somehow this, more than anything Mad-Eye has said to this point, cements it. This has to be the truth. The person before Harry is a Death Eater, a monstrous person. He moved Harry through the tournament and toward Voldemort. And he says, but I also had to contend with your stupidity. This too is Voldemort-esque, that yes. kind of taunting at the moment of decision, at the moment of death, when you have your foot on their throat, you can't just finish them off. You have to let them know about it. You have to let them know that they're beaten. You have to humiliate them. This is the mark of a, of a Death Eater. He was most worried, he says, about the second task, knowing Harry hadn't solved the clue. I knew you hadn't worked out the egg's clue, so I had to give you another hint. You didn't, Harry said hoarsely. Cedric gave me the clue. Who told Cedric to open it underwater? I did. I trusted that he would pass the information on to you. Decent people are so easy to manipulate Potter. I was sure Cedric would want to repay you for telling him about the dragons, and so he did. Decent people are so easy to manipulate. This cuts deep, forcing Harry to question not only the events that led him to this moment, but the very truth of his existence, the very truth of his way of life. Next book, next school year, in Order of the Phoenix, Harry will again fall victim to this manipulation when Voldemort 
preys upon the knowledge that Harry will do anything to try to rescue Sirius if he thinks he's in harm's way. Yet Harry's decency is also what makes him such a worthy hero. As Lily proved, as Dumbledore always says, it is our choices and it is love and the kindness in our hearts. We realize how deep this plot goes when Moody says that what Harry needed all along was right there in the dorm. In Magical Water Plants of the Mediterranean, the book Moody gave to Neville after the unforgivable curse lesson, he expected Harry to cast a wide net for help. But you did not. You did not. You have a streak of pride and independence that might have ruined all. I mean, listen, fair criticism is fair criticism wherever it's coming from. Here again, the truth that cuts to the core of who Harry is, how often Harry has found himself in peril because he didn't ask for help soon enough, or he's just a procrastinator, to be fair, to be it in truth. And you know what? I understand it. And this is a thing we'll get to in order in more detail. But it's like, you've just been faced with horrors, but also you're a 14, 15-year-old kid. Sometimes a kid just wants to be a kid, doesn't want to have to deal with like the whole weight of the world on his shoulders. Sometimes you just want to play sports and date a girl. So I get it. Got to take Cho to the tea shop. I get it. How often will he ask for help in the future? And yet, is it not this independence, this kind of strength and, and certainty that makes Harry believe he can find the Horcruxes, that allows him to walk into the forest and toward certain death? When Harry failed to ask Neville, Moody fed Harry information from another innocent source again. Innocents are the first victims. He staged a conversation about Gillyweed, which Dobby then stole from Snape's office. Shouts to the Dobster. Shouts to Dobby. Thief. Now and always. The truth of Snape's Gillyweed witch hunt revealed here. Moody says he thought Harry drowned in the lake due to how long he was gone, but, quote, Dumbledore took your idiocy for nobility and marked you high for it. Another virtue of Harry's corrupted as foul, a virtue, as we've noted, that his own closest companions would note can be used against him next year when Harry is rushing to save Sirius. Really a brilliant stretch here where every criticism that Imposter Moody levies against Harry is simultaneously valid and the source of Harry's wonder and strength. Moody confirms the suspicion that Harry felt bubbling in his gut as he made his way through the maze. He should have been facing more. But Moody could see through the hedges as he patrolled and he removed many blockades from Harry's path. He stunned Floor. He put Crom under the Imperious Curse, another massive mystery solved there. Quote, Harry stared at Moody. He just didn't see how this could be. Harry sees that the shapes he's noticed moving in Moody's faux glass are becoming more distinct. But Moody yeah. doesn't see them. He only has eyes for Harry. Quote, the Dark Lord didn't manage to kill you, Potter, and he so wanted to, whispered Moody. Imagine how he will reward me when he finds I have done it for him. Moody looks insane as he leers over Harry, who knows, probably not going to have time to reach for his wand here. Moody says, Dark Lord, we have a lot in common. Quote, both of us, for instance, had very disappointing fathers, very disappointing indeed. Both of us suffered the indignity, Harry, of being named after those fathers. And both of us had the pleasure, the very great pleasure, of killing our fathers to ensure the continued rise of the Dark Order. Now, we as readers, at this point in the story, we don't know anything about Mad-Eye Moody's history beyond that he's this legendary Auror and what his reputation is professionally. This statement is an eyebrow raiser, named after his father. We've never heard this about Moody. Could more truths await here? Harry, he's not wondering this. He is too absorbed in the horror playing out before him, and he shouts that Moody is mad. No matter, Moody says, he is back, Harry Potter. You did not conquer him, and now I conquer you. What? <laughs> no, you don't. Moody raises his wand and Harry plunges his hand into his own robes. He will be too late, but then stupefy. Flash of red light. The door blows apart. Harry sees Dumbledore 
flanked by Snape and McGonagall in the faux glass, and he turns and he sees them in the doorway. Dumbledore wand out from the book. At that moment, Harry fully understood for the first time why people said Dumbledore was the only wizard Voldemort ever feared. And there's this great description of just the power that's rippling off Dumbledore. And also that, that twinkle, that kind of stereotypical twinkle in the eye that you think of Dumbledore, that kind of mirthful uh, look is gone. It's all seriousness and he is pissed. The truth of Dumbledore's power revealing itself to us and Harry McGonagall tries to take Harry away, but Dumbledore insists that he stays. He will stay, Minerva, because he needs to understand. Understanding is the first step to acceptance. Only with acceptance can there be recovery. What a moment. Dumbledore means this here and now, believes fully that Harry needs to hear the truth. Most of the truth, notably, not the whole truth. That will have to wait. Dumbledore still has some truths to keep from Harry. Here, even after Voldemort's return, another year will pass before Dumbledore does tell Harry about the prophecy. Again, even next year when he does, more secrets await. Secrets that Harry will only discover through solitude and memory. But some truths are for the here and now. This is not Alistair Moody, Dumbledore says. He knows because the real Moody would not have taken Harry from Dumbledore's care after Dumbledore said that he wanted him to stay. He says, and I followed. Very slowly, by the way, it would seem. Moody and Harry chatted for quite a while before Dumbledore showed up. He pulls out Moody's key ring and his hip flask. He tells Snape, go fetch the strongest truth serum that you have. Bring Winky up from the kitchen. He asks McGonagall to bring up a large black dog sitting in Hagrid's pumpkin patch. Bring him to Dumbledore's office. And he begins to open the locks in Moody's trunk, a house of secrets. And every time Dumbledore places in a key, a new opening is revealed, storing new truths. The seventh key reveals the biggest truth of all. Harry looks down into a pit. Ten feet below, he sees thin, starved, The real Mad-Eye Moody, his wooden leg, his magical eye, gone, his hair, patchy. Dumbledore jumps down, announces that the real Mad-Eye Moody has been stunned and controlled by the Imperious Curse. When Dumbledore comes back up, he empties the flask, Polyjuice Potion, the perfect cover. Quote, you see the simplicity of it and the brilliance. For Moody never does drink except from his hip flask, and he's well known for it. The imposter needed to keep the real Moody alive, of course, so that he can continue to use his hair. Boomslang skin, missing ingredients from Snape's office, another truth revealed. They wait for the imposter to transform as the potion wears off, and as he does, the leg and the eye pop off. Who's this person laying there? Well, Harry recognized him. He saw him in the memory in the pensive. It's Barty Crouch Jr. (laughs) (laughs) And this is a shock to everyone. A stunning moment. It is a shock. Just a perfectly orchestrated plot twist. Yes. It really is. And Dumbledore is like, okay, Snape, get me the Veritas serum from your office. I need it. Dumbledore pours it down, crouches mouth, revives him, and begins to question him. I would like you to tell us, said Dumbledore, softly, how you came to be here. How'd you escape from Azkaban? And Junior spills. He tells him everything. How they managed the switch using Polyjuice and his dying mother, how the Dementors were fooled by this because they sensed one healthy person and one dying person, how the person that died in Azkaban was actually his mother, how Crouch Sr. staged her death holding a small funeral, how Winky nursed Jr. back to health. And he says, when I had recovered my strength, I thought only of finding my master, of returning to his service. Chilling. 
Crouch Sr. used the Imperius Curse to control his son and the Invisibility Cloak to hide him day and night as Winky looked on. But one day, someone discovered their secret, Bertha Jorkins, who came to the house with papers for Sr. to sign. She heard Winky speaking to Junior, discovered that he was there. When Senior came home, he put a powerful memory charm on Bertha. Quote, too powerful. He said it damaged her memory permanently. Here it is. The mystery of the differing accounts of Bertha Jorkin's memory solved at last. And here also, another reminder to consider the danger of wizards possessing the power to control the yes. truth. To control what other people know and remember. We learned that Winky convinced Barty Crouch Sr. to take junior to the Quidditch World Cup. He and Winky went to the top box early so as to be undetected. He, we realized, was in the seat that Winky claimed to be saving for senior. Quote, Winky didn't know that I was growing stronger. In the box, he regained a sense of self. And there he saw a wand sticking out of a boy's pocket. Harry's wand. He stole it. Winky had her face in her hands because she's scared of heights. She didn't see this. Another mystery solved. And then he heard the Death Eaters torturing the Roberts family. Quote, the sound of their voices awoke me. This is t absolutely terrifying. The sound of those who hadn't given up everything for Voldemort, as yeah. he had. Tried to find Voldemort, as he had. When Senior left the tent to go join the Ministry's counterattack, Winky, afraid to see Junior so angry, bound him to her. Another mystery solved, this time of Winky, moving through the woods, remember, as though pulling something or someone invisible. He wanted to punish the Death Eaters for their lack of loyalty. And so he sent the Dark Mark into the sky. The stunners hit Winky and Junior, but Junior was under the cloak, so no one could see him. Daddy Crouch found him, put him back under the Imperious Curse, and took him, dismissing Winky from his service. Father and son were alone again. And Crouch says, and then, and then my master came for me, he says, an insane grin splitting his face. Voldemort and Wormtail had found out from Bertha that Junior was still alive and desperate to return to the Dark Lord's service. They also found out from her about the Triwizard Tournament and of Alistair Moody's plan to teach at Hogwarts. Voldemort arrived, senior answered. I, I love this. Who is it? Voldemort! Voldemort. <laughs> Don't keep me waiting. I just have a tiny little blob yes. body. Voldemort, yeah, I, I can't even do anything. I got a blob body. Listen, we got a milk in a guinea. <laughs> I, I'm in a blanket. I'm a, do you have a milking room? Listen, I've been carried all day uh, like across the continent by a guy. I don't even like him. I got a blob body. Wormtail's a wanted wizard. Can't have him out on the porch. Just open up. <laughs> <laughs> Voldemort plays senior under the imperious curse. Oh, God. Junior continues. Now, my father was the one imprisoned, controlled. And Junior... I was released. I awoke. I was myself again. I was alive again, alive as I hadn't been in years. Voldemort then asked him to risk everything. And of course, he was ready. He and Wormtail prepared Polyjuice, then went to Moody's, where they subdued him just in time, constant vigilance, failing him here. <laughs> the imposter was in position by the time Arthur Weasley arrived to figure out what had happened. Or in this case, clearly to not have figured out <laughs> right. what had happened, Arthur. <laughs> Listen, Arthur's... <laughs> Arthur can't figure out the number two. It's like way his sleep cycle's all fucked up. <laughs> Barty kept Moody alive all year using his hair as for the potion and questioning him about his habits and his life in order to better impersonate the famed Auror. All was well until Crouch Sr. began to fight the Imperious Curse as well, just as his son had. 
They have him, instead of going into the office, start sending letters to the ministry. Percy, great looking out here. But eventually, Crouch Sr. escaped and set out for Hogwarts for Dumbledore for confession and absolution. Voldemort told Jr. to watch out for his dad, and he did using Harry's map. This is a great moment in the course of the confession. Very rare moment where the flow of information is really truly interrupted. Map, said Dumbledore quickly. What map is this? This is a painful moment. Realizing that Harry's map helped the imposter. Realizing that even after learning about Sirius and the Marauders' Animagi transformations, Dumbledore still had not learned every truth about the Marauders or their inventions Mm. or what those inventions could be used to do. Potter's map of Hogwarts. Potter saw me on it. Potter saw me stealing more ingredients for the polyjuice potion from Snape's office one night. He thought I was my father. We have the same name. The truth of that night revealed for Harry and Snape alike. The truth of one of the map's few limitations revealed for all. Dumbledore. Map? (laughs) Fucking what a moment for my dude, Dumbly. Tough. Map? Did somebody say map? When at last he saw on the map that his father had entered the grounds, he went under his cloak and waited. Harry went up to get Dumbledore, stunned Crumb, killed his father. Winky hears this and is distraught. What a tangled web Winky has woven here. Dumbledore maintains an eerie calm as he continues to question Junior, who we learn, carried his father's body into the forest and covered it with the cloak. Later, in a turn that can only be described as almost like mythical, like this sounds like something from from like the foundational tales of an ancient culture. You know what I mean? Like Absolutely. He returned, transfiguring the body into a bone and burying it. The mystery of Crouch's disappearance solved in tragic fashion. A powerful man and wizard murdered by his own son, murdered in secret. The truth of his death and his life buried in dirt, clearing the way for the imposter's next act. And tonight I took the Triwizard Cup into the maze where he turned it into a portkey that would take Harry to the graveyard to Voldemort. My master's plan worked. He has returned to power, and I will be honored by him beyond the dreams of wizards. The insane smile lit his features once more, and his head dropped onto his shoulder as Winky wailed and sobbed at his side. You ever think about what's buried in the ground at Hogwarts? There's like a million. Crouch's That's, bone. The resurrection stone that, fallen into the forest ground. I mean, it's kind of like when you think about the room of requirement, just the stuff that people need to hide yeah. places and just forget. I'm sure there's stuff in the walls and cracks and just like little hideaway places. Like Amazing. 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 Chapter 36, The Parting of the Ways. Part him! Doozy of a chapter here. Disgust covers Dumbledore's face as he binds Barty Crouch Jr. in ropes. He asks McGonagall to stand guard over Jr. while he takes Harry upstairs. Quote, she looked slightly nauseous as though she had just watched someone being sick. However, when she drew out her wand and pointed it at Barty Crouch, her hand was quite steady. Small moments like this carry such weight reminding us what transpired in that room is not normal, not something that these people have seen. It is foul. It has dirtied all of them. But they can't succumb. They have found the truth, and now they must find the strength to fight it. Dumbledore leads Harry to his office where Sirius is waiting. Harry feels a kind of numbness and a sense of complete unreality upon him. But he welcomes this. He doesn't want to think about what happened in the graveyard. Harry asks Where are the diggeries? And when Dumbledore answers, his voice shakes. They are with Professor Sprout. He says she was the head of Cedric's house and knew him best. They enter Dumbledore's office and Sirius is there 
white, gaunt, his hands shaking as he guides Harry to a chair, repeating how he knew something terrible would happen, asking Harry if he's all right. He feels so like a father in this moment, a father who couldn't protect his child despite knowing that he needed to, and it's agonizing to think of the beauty of the bond and how truly cruel it is that in just a year it will all go away. Dumbledore tells Harry everything that Crouch Jr. had confessed to, and Harry is only half listening from the book. He wanted nothing more than to sit here undisturbed for hours and hours until he fell asleep and didn't have to think or feel anymore. He doesn't want any more truth. He's taken on too much already, more than anyone should have. As Harry sits, unhearing, Fox flies over to him. Hello, Fox, said Harry quietly. I love that. I was just L-O instead of hello, low. He stroked the phoenix's beautiful scarlet and gold plumage. Fox blinked peacefully up at him. There was something comforting about his warm weight. Dumbledore sits behind his desk, and Harry knows that he's about to question him, that he's about to remake him live all the horrors of the night. Sure enough, quote, I need to know what happened after you touched the porky in the maze, Harry. For us and Harry, Dumbledore has long been a figure of awe. We mock him, sure. Yeah. We, we nitpick. Yeah. But a revered wizard, a beautiful man, equal parts brilliance and heart. This is one of the first moments where the truth of his intention is really becoming clear for us. He is aligned against Voldemort, determined to thwart him, no matter the cost. The full truth of that will not be clear to us or Harry until Deathly Hallows. But there is an illuminating purpose on display here, a determination to arm himself with the knowledge that he'll one day use to help Harry bring down Voldemort. Sirius's paternal instinct takes over again. He says, surely this can wait till tomorrow. Let him sleep. Quote, Harry felt a rush of gratitude towards Sirius, but Dumbledore took no notice of Sirius's words. Again, this contrast, Dumbledore, we've always thought of as a fatherly figure, dead set in his intentions. Nothing, not even Harry's comfort, is more important here than pursuing the truth. And it is truly amazing to think about this moment and what it represents in terms of how it contrasts Dumbledore's confession at the end of Order of the Phoenix, when his excuse for withholding so much from Harry for so long boils down, in essence, in many respects, to not wanting to have caused Harry more pain. In the past, Dumbledore thought he could prevent that pain. But here, right now, he knows it's unavoidable. Quote, if I thought I could help you, Dumbledore said gently, by putting you into an enchanted sleep and allowing you to postpone the moment when you would have to think about what has happened tonight, I would do it. But I know better. Numbing the pain for a while will make it worse when you finally feel it. You have shown bravery beyond anything I could have expected of you. I ask you to demonstrate your courage one more time. I ask you to tell us what happened. There is so much here, so much heart, so much misery. Dumbledore knows as well as anyone that the pain doesn't go away because as Harry will learn in Prince, as Dumbledore guzzles the cursed potion in the cave, and as we and Harry will learn in Deathly Hallows when Dumbledore's family history comes to light, he's felt this pain himself. And this will also not be the last time that Dumbledore asks Harry to demonstrate his courage. He will ask it of him time and time again, and Harry will abide. From this moment until he walks into the forest, you wonderful boy, Dumbledore will say to Harry after that forest walk when they meet in King's Cross, you brave, brave man. So he must be here as well. Dumbledore and Harry will have help. Fox 
sings his song of hope and strength, and Harry finds the strength to talk about what happened in the graveyard. He talks about Cedric's body, talks about the Death Eaters. Sirius's hand is on his shoulder the whole time. He felt as though something poisonous were being extracted from him. When Harry mentions Voldemort taking his blood, Sirius says something, exclaims something. Harry explains that Voldemort said his blood would make him stronger than if he'd used someone else's. He said the protection my, my mother left in me, he'd have it too. And he was right. He could touch me without hurting himself. He touched my face. For a fleeting instant, Harry thought he saw a gleam of something like triumph in Dumbledore's eyes. But next second, Harry was sure he had imagined it. For when Dumbledore had returned to his seat behind the desk, he looked as old and weary as Harry had ever seen him. This is a huge moment. Mm -hmm. A moment when Dumbledore birth learns a landscape-altering truth and does not share the truth that he's deduced with Harry. We will not understand the gleam in Dumbledore's eyes until the endgame in Deathly Hallows when Harry and Dumbledore converse in King's Cross after Harry has sacrificed himself. How, Harry asks, can he be alive? Your blood in his veins, Harry, Dumbledore tells him. Lily's protection inside both of you. He tethered you to life while he lives. Later, he adds, he took your blood believing it would strengthen him. He took it into his body, a tiny part of the enchantment, your mother laid upon you when she died for you. His body keeps her sacrifice alive. And while that enchantment survives, so do you and so does Voldemort's one last hope for himself. Harry will ask upon hearing this if Dumbledore knew this at the time. I guessed, but my guesses have usually been good, adding, if he could only have understood the precise and terrible power of that sacrifice, he would not perhaps have dared to touch your blood. But then if he had been able to understand, he could not be Lord Voldemort. So many endgame truths. Some of the foundational truth on which the entire series hinges, glimpsed through a little gleam in Dumbledore's eye. Such a good moment. I remember yeah. how much speculation there was for years about what that line meant about that gleam. Harry continues back in Dumbledore's office, back in his fourth year, back in the present, telling them about Voldemort emerging from the cauldron and, and speaking to his Death Eaters. He tells them how they dueled. Quote, but when he reached the part where the golden beam light had connected his and Voldemort's wands, he found his throat obstructed. He tried to keep talking, but the memories of what had come out of Voldemort's wand were flooding into his mind. He could see Cedric emerging, see the old man, Bertha Jorkins, his father, his mother. Sirius breaks the silence by asking why the wands would have connected. Prior incantatum, Dumbledore mutters, and he explains that Harry's and Voldemort's wands share cores, the feather from the tail of a phoenix. We knew that part. This? This is a revelation. This phoenix, in fact, Fox. Fox's feathers in their wands. An amazing reveal. Another tie mm -hmm. between not only Harry and Voldemort, but Harry and Dumbledore. Dumbledore and Voldemort. Sirius asks, what happens when a wand meets its brother? Dumbledore says they will not work properly against each other. A truth that Voldemort will learn in time. A truth that will eventually lead him to seek out the Elder Wand. When brother wands are forced to duel, Dumbledore says, a rare effect occurs. One will force the other to regurgitate its spells, which means, Dumbledore says, that some form of Cedric must have appeared. Sirius asks sharply if Cedric came back to life, and Dumbledore issues one of the foundational truths on which not only this story, but all of literature and all of existence hinges. <laughs> Quote, No spell can reawaken the dead said Dumbledore heavily. We will understand in time what this truth means for Dumbledore, how his sister's death defined his entire life, how he coveted the hallows, how he thirsted for the resurrection stone. When Dumbledore asks if Harry's parents emerged and he says yes, 
Sirius's grip on his shoulder is described as so tight, it was painful. When Harry gets to Cedric's final request, he finds he can't continue. He looks at Sirius, who has his face in his hands. Fox flutters to the floor and cries, healing tears into the wound in Harry's leg. And Dumbledore says, you have shown bravery beyond anything I could have expected of you tonight, Harry. You've shown bravery equal to those who died fighting Voldemort at the height of his powers. You have shouldered a grown wizard's burden and found yourself equal to it. And you have now given us all that we have a right to expect. Sirius transforms back into his dog form, and together he and Dumbledore guide Harry to the hospital wing for a sleeping potion. When they arrive, they find Mrs. Weasley, Bill, Ron, and Hermione demanding to know, where is Harry? Molly moves toward him, but Dumbledore tells her, Harry needs rest. They are, however, allowed to stay with him. From the book, Harry felt an inexpressible sense of gratitude to Dumbledore for asking the others not to question him. He wants their company, wants the safety and comfort of their presence, but he can't do it all again. He can't relive it all again. He gets into bed and notices that Ron and Hermione were looking at him almost cautiously as though scared of him. He tells them he's okay, he's just tired. Mrs. Weasley's eyes filled with tears as she's smoothed his bed covers unnecessarily. What a great mom. I love that description yeah. because, of course, in her mind, it's totally necessary. It's caring for him. Yeah. And then Madame Pomfrey gives him a goblet of potion for a dreamless sleep. And before Harry can even finish it, boom, he's out. He wakes to whispers and then to shouts. Fudge, McGonagall, Snape, enter. Followed shortly by Dumbledore. Why are you disturbing these people, Minerva? I'm surprised at you. I asked you to stand guard over Barty Crouch. There is no need to stand guard over him anymore, Dumbledore. She shrieked. The minister has seen to that. We observe through Harry's eyes. He's never seen Professor McGonagall lose control in this fashion. What mm -hmm. could have happened to cause her to speak this way to and about the Minister of Magic? Quote, she was trembling with fury. Snape says that Fudge, learning of the Death Eater's presence in the castle, felt his personal safety was in jeopardy. He insisted on summoning a Dementor. McGonagall shouts that she told him Dumbledore would not approve. And this is a moment where Fudge fires back forcefully. He's the Minister. It's his right. He doesn't need Dumbledore's approval. This is getting ugly quickly. Quick one. <laughs> oh, quick one. McGonagall says that the moment that thing entered, it swooped down on Crouch, and Harry doesn't need her to continue to know the truth. Quote, it had administered its fatal kiss to Barty Crouch. It had sucked his soul out through his mouth. He was worse than dead. Fudge blusters on. By all accounts, he was no loss. Dumbledore responds. But he cannot now give testimony, Cornelius, said Dumbledore. Yes, come he was on, guys. staring like... hard at Fudge as though seeing him plainly for the first yeah. time. The truth of Fudge's character and cowardice are coming to the fore. Yeah. And not only that, but this is, it, this looks suspicious. You just silenced a witness? Why? Why, Corn Fudge? Can I ask? <laughs> My God, great take. Fudge, continue. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, like you have to be, it's, this is actually something I've been thinking about. It is a credit to the wizards of Hogwarts that more people aren't paranoid all the time. People can change their appearances at will. They can use polyjuice potion. They can use transfiguration. They can do any number of things to appear to be another person. And yet, it's, a, it's by and large a warm and trusting community where people aren't like, why is that guy acting strange? Do you think he's really him right. or her? Uh, that doesn't happen. And when Fudge is like, what do you mean? I just, uh, whoops, I put a Dementor in with uh, the key witness. In that moment, if I'm Dumbledore, I'm like, mm, that's, I need to look at you because you just literally silenced a witness. Fudge continues mocking Junior's proclamation that he was doing it all for you know who. Lord Voldemort was giving him instructions, Cornelius Dumbledore said. 
Those people's deaths were a mere byproduct of a plan to restore Voldemort to full strength. The plan succeeded. Voldemort has been restored to his body. And Fudge looked dazed. He's blinking. He's staring at Dumbledore like he can't believe what he's just heard. And he's sputtering. You know who returned? Preposterous. Come on. The man in charge of the Ministry of Magic atop the entire government, refusing to accept the truth that he's hearing, the truth for which he's seen copious evidence to this point, and the truth <laughs> in the form of, by the way, a witness that he's just had murdered by accident. Whoops. Oh, sucked out of soul. Sucked out his soul. Worse than having a murder. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, whoops. I mean, it's almost... <laughs> and he's sitting here and he refuses to accept this. To take the word of a lunatic, Dumbledore, Fudge says. But the true lunacy is his refusal to listen to sense or reason. And he tries to shift tactics here. Tough moment for our guy, Corn Fudge. He's basically like, are you going to believe this kid? Are you going to believe Harry? This little boy. Are you going to believe this little, this little boy? <laughs> he faints all the time and he be hit on the head. Sirius in dog form growls at him. I love that part. Dumbledore looks pissed. And Harry's figured out, oh, you've been reading Rita Skeeter? Which is ironic, considering that the Ministry is the main target of Skeeter's broadsides often. Fudge, who long treated Harry as a cherished egg to cradle and protect, certainly when it could burnish his own PR, mm -hmm. now sees only danger. Another threat to his comfortable existence, an existence that would topple if he accepts the truth of what he's now hearing. He mentions Parseltongue and Harry's strange turns. And Harry observes that Dumbledore again seemed to radiate that indefinable sense of power. As he steps toward Fudge and tells him that Harry is as sane as they are and that his scar hurts because of Voldemort. One note I have for Dumbledore is that saying his scar hurts because of Voldemort actually doesn't make Harry sound as sane as everyone else. Right. Just I mean, one note. Well, listen, it's... Just one note. We're all... We're, this whole... The wizarding world is really bad at messaging <laughs> it's in general. Very true. <laughs> Harry can't stand it. He begins to shout about the Death Eaters he saw. He names Lucius Malfoy. Quote, Snape made a sudden movement. But as Harry looked at him, Snape's eyes flew back to fudge. A notable moment here, one of the many that people would parse. Frankly, one that people who were on the Snape is really bad side turn to often between Prince and Hallows. Harry keeps listing names and fudge fires back that he's only naming the people who have already been cleared. He could have found those names in a book. The books Hermione's always talking about. He says Harry's tails are getting taller. Great moment here from McGallion. You fool, Professor McGonagall cried. Cedric Diggory, Mr. Crouch, these deaths were not the random work of a lunatic. Just trust McGonagall always to yes. remain the truest ride-or-die homie that there is. Fudge is purpling in the face. Vernon Dursley-esque. And he shouts, it seems to me that you are all determined to start a panic that will destabilize everything we have worked for these last 13 years. Uh, you know who else might destabilize that corn? Voldemort. He's not back. What are you talking about? Uh, are you going to believe uh, this guy that I just had his soul sucked out? Let's ask him. Oh, he's dead. I can't. We can't ask him now, but would you trust him? <laughs> what is Dumbledore going to destabilize? Just the willful ignorance, just the lies. Harry cannot believe what he's seeing. He observes, quote, a short, angry wizard stood before him, refusing point blank to accept the prospect of disruption in his comfortable and ordered world. To believe that Voldemort could have risen. It's, a, it's honestly wild. Like, the head of a department of the ministry, the former head of all law enforcement in Britain, yeah. 
magical law enforcement, was found to have smuggled his son, a known Death Eater, and been harboring him at his home. And that that son then, by his own admission, conjured the dark mark, which was seen by, I don't know, 100,000 witnesses? During a Death Eater attack. And now you're like, yeah, but... I, I for one, can, <laughs> cannot imagine living in a society where sons and fathers... Come on! ...get up to nefarious yeah, things. Yeah. <laughs> Listen... It's strange that uh, Crouch's wife has not been seen in a while. <laughs> Dumbledore will not bend. He tells Fudge again, Voldemort's back, and Fudge must take necessary measures. First, this is great. Get the Dementors out of Azkaban. Here's your to-do list, Corn. Yeah, here's, and by the way, we've been waiting this long for like an executable action list for, from Dumbledore. Better late than never, here it is. Remove the Dementors, one. Fudge is like, what are you, fucking crazy? Who the uh, who are we going to get to do it? Who's going to be in there? Dumbledore points out that these creatures have a natural affinity for the dark side. And of course, Voldemort's going to be able to offer them something that the ministry and the rest of wizarding kind can't, which is the opportunity to suck out souls willy nilly. Next, send an envoy to the giants. Get them in the fold before it's too late. Again, Fudge is like, <laughs> the giants? The, the fucking giants? <laughs> What? I never, I never took you for a National League guy, Dumbledore. <laughs> oh, I'm proud of you for going with baseball instead of making an Eli Manning Thank joke. Thank you very you know? much. So the much lower hanging fruit. Thank you. Dumbledore again will be proven right when Hagrid and Maxine go to the Giants in order. Voldemort's minions are there as well. Yes. You are blinded said Dumbledore, his voice rising now, the aura of power around him palpable, his eyes blazing once more. By the love of the office you hold, you place too much importance and you always have done on the so-called purity of blood. You fail to recognize that it matters not what someone is born, but what they grow to be. He is eviscerating Fudge and his office and everything he stands for. He continues, I tell you now, take the steps I have suggested and you will be remembered in office or out as one of the bravest and greatest ministers of magic we have ever known. Fail to act and history will remember you as the man who stepped aside and allowed Voldemort a second chance to destroy the world we have tried to rebuild. Fascinating here to see Dumbledore talk about power and legacy, channeling his inner Tywin here, in light of what we will learn about how Dumbledore himself was tempted by this. But this isn't just a lecture. This is a promise. This is a declaration of intent. Quote, If your determination to shut your eyes will carry you as far as this, Cornelius, said Dumbledore, we have reached a parting of the ways. You must act as you see fit, and I, I shall act as I see fit. Fudge is bristling. He feels threatened. Says, if you're going to work against me. And it's all too easy for Dumbledore to reply. The only one against whom I intend to work is Lord Voldemort. If you are against him, then we remain Cornelius on the same side. Now, we will see moving forward that the truth isn't quite such a binary. That the world, as Sirius will say in Order of the Phoenix, isn't split into good people and Death Eaters. But there is a purity of intention here in Dumbledore's words. Yes. A belief. Yes. That even men as different in ability and desire as Dumbledore and Cornelius Fudge can band together to fight evil as long as they agree to the truth. Fudge is rocked. 
Oh, yeah. And he continues with this, listen, Voldemort can't be back. He cannot be. And Snape, in a really incredible moment that we've been waiting for all book. I love this. Strides up, pulls up his sleeve and says, there, there, the dark mark. It's not as clear as it was an hour or so ago when it burned black, but you can still see it. And he explains that the Death Eaters had the mark burned into them. And recall that what we've talked about over the previous episodes, that this is not widely known. The dark mark's existence was not widely known by people you would expect to know it. Right. Tightly held secret. He continues, it was a means of distinguishing one another and his means of summoning us. And he says that Karkaroff fled because they both felt the mark burn and they knew what it meant, knew that Voldemort was back. Snape is sharing his truth, or at least part of it, the part of it that's not so personal to him in front of the minister and Harry and all the assembled, admitting to his past in order to ensure a stable future. Fudge, repulsed, turns to exit, promising to be in touch about how Hogwarts is running. Before he goes, he gives Harry his cash. That's a chilling moment when yeah. it turns to him. You're winning. Yeah. Oh. The moment Fudge leaves, Dumbledore springs into action. Here, finally. No time to waste. There's work to be done, he says. He asks Molly to message Arthur. I love that moment when he asks her, I can count on you. We're watching right. the Order of the Phoenix spring together before our eyes. It's amazing. They need to persuade anyone they can of the truth, including those inside the ministry. Bill says, I'll go. And Dumbledore tells Bill that Arthur must be discreet. Quote, if Fudge thinks I am interfering at the ministry, another clue of the divide to come, the misplaced insecurity that Dumbledore, who will learn in time, doesn't trust himself around power, doesn't want the top job. Misplaced insecurity that he does. Yeah. Dumbledore next asks McGonagall to summon Hagrid and Maxime to his office. He's going to send them to the Giants as we'll learn in order. And then he sends Madame Pomfrey to Winky, who needs care. And then once the room has been cleared, quote, it is time for two of our number to recognize each other for what they are. Serious? If you could resume your usual form? Woof. Truth of Sirius's identity at last. Truth of the hate between Sirius and Snape forced to the foreground. And Snape is like, what the fuck? Yeah. Dumbledore says, and this is an amazing line, an amazing instance of how Dumbledore controls all of these tangled webs. He is here at my invitation. As are you, Severus. I love that. As are you, Severus. I trust you both. It is time for you to lay aside your old differences and trust each other. He tells them to shake hands. Quote, unless the few of us who know the truth stand united, there is no hope for any of us. But when is the truth enough to really bind us together? Sirius and Snape both know and accept that Voldemort is back. They don't need convincing of that. They're bound together by that new reality. But they also have another reality. They loathe each other. They always have. They always will. And the tension between them and Order of the Phoenix will haunt those pages and Harry's heart alike. Dumbledore tells Sirius to gather the old members of the crew. You are to alert Remus Lupin, Arabella Fig, Mundungus Fletcher, the old crowd. Lie low at Lupin's for a while. I will contact you there. He's getting the Order of the Phoenix back together. Yes. He turns to Snape. Severus, you know what I must ask you to do if you are ready, if you are prepared. I am, said Snape. And he looked slightly paler than usual and his cold black eyes glittered strangely. Then good luck, said Dumbledore, and watched with a trace of apprehension on his face as Snape swept wordlessly after Sirius. We won't know until the prince's tale when the truth in Snape's heart is revealed and the truth in Dumbledore and Snape's past even Dumbledore, as the trace of apprehension indicates, cannot know for sure if the promise that binds them together will hold. 
It's a very tenuous thing that he's asking Snape to do. One day we'll all know, and one day we'll hear the word always. Always. But never, never forget how up in the air it seemed at this time. When Dumbledore leaves, Mrs. Weasley tells Harry that he needs to rest. He needs to take his potion. She tells him to dream, to think about something else, like his winnings. And then, as Harry is saying that he doesn't want that gold, it washes over him at last, quote, the thing against which he had been fighting on and off ever since he had come out of the maze was threatening to overpower him. He could feel a burning, prickling feeling in the inner corners of his eyes. He blinked and stared up at the ceiling. It wasn't your fault, Harry, Mrs. Weasley whispered. Ah, this is agonizing. I told him to take the cup with me, said Harry. Now the burning feeling was in his throat, too. He wished Ron would look away. The truth that Harry asked Cedric to take the cup with him, that if he hadn't pushed for that, Cedric would be alive, that will never leave Harry. Quote, Mrs. Weasley set the potion down on the bedside cabinet, bent down and put her arms around Harry. This part kills me every time. He had no memory of ever being hugged like this, as though by a mother. The full weight of everything he had seen that night seemed to fall in upon him as Mrs. Weasley held him to her. His mother's face, his father's voice, the sight of Cedric dead on the ground, all started spinning in his head until he could hardly bear it, until he was screwing up his face against the howl of misery, fighting to get out of him. This isn't just truth. This is agony. All the horrors of Harry's life, from his parents' death when he was just a baby, to the violations of this night, morphing together into a suffocating cloud, a collection of trauma that Harry isn't sure he'll ever escape. He drinks the potion and thinks no more. Chapter 37, The Beginning. Harry's meeting with the Diggories is painful, as is the very nature of mere existence for him right now, but he finds that he doesn't mind the whispers that follow him through the halls. He's at peace when he's with Ron, who tells him, notably, that Dumbledore said to Molly that Harry must return to the Dursleys. Another truth Dumbledore has yet to fully reveal, but will soon. At peace when he's with Hermione, at peace with he when he's with Hagrid. Harry's conversation with Hagrid is a reminder that some truths are not specific to a particular battle, a particular life. They are eternal. Hagrid says... No, he's going to come back. Nor for you. Nor for you, Harry. No, he's out there by this time. It had to happen. Well, now it has, and we'll just have to get on with it. We'll fight. Hagrid said as much to Harry and Stone. And we return to this theme often because it is the source of so much of our hero's strength. Remember in Game of Thrones when Beric says to John, death is the enemy the first enemy and the last. And John says, but we all die. Beric replies, the enemy always wins and we still need to fight him. As Harry sits at Dumbledore's funeral in Half-Blood Prince, he will think, quote, it was important, Dumbledore said, to fight and to fight again and keep fighting. For only then could evil be kept at bay, though never quite eradicated. In Deathly Hallows, Harry will see the inscription upon his parents' tombstone. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. This is a universal truth. Whether you're Harry or John or another hero or just a regular person in the world, the enemies never go away. Death never fades. And yet we must fight. Together we must fight. What's coming will come, Hagrid says, and we'll meet it when it does. In the end, the truth always outs. It doesn't always happen when we wish it would. 
And sometimes it takes far too long, years even, but it always does. And in the wake of Cedric's shocking death, the truth of that, having been witnessed by the entire student body and numerous important ministry figures, including Daddy Corn Fudge himself, after that, Dumbledore finally comes clean in public in an emotional speech in the dining hall with black drapes on the walls in honor of Cedric's passing. After praising Cedric as an exemplar of the finest traditions of House Hufflepuff, Dumbledore drops the hammer, telling the students they have a right to know how he died, a right to the truth. Cedric Diggory was murdered by Lord Voldemort, he says, and he allows a moment for this fearful news to sink in. And then he lets the ministry have it with both barrels, both wands. The Ministry of Magic does not wish me to tell you this. It is possible that some of your parents will be horrified that I have done so, either because they will not believe that Lord Voldemort has returned or because they think I should not tell you so, young as you are, and that any attempt to pretend that Cedric died as the result of an accident or some sort of blunder of his own is an insult to his memory. But it's not the whole truth. That particular species of truth in which Dumbledore divests himself of his own involvement or lack thereof in the events which led to this state of affairs, but this truth will serve for now. Dumbledore has been fighting this battle against Voldemort as a kind of one-man cold war in which only he truly, truly, truly understood the stakes, and that's no longer true. We just listened to Albus basically ask Corn Fudge to do something, and now he's finally calling his side to action, though the hour is very, very late. And his beautiful speech continues. He toasts Harry. Malfoy notably does not stand. Dumbledore speaks to the Durmstrang and Bobaton students as well as to his own. I say to you all, once again, in light of Lord Voldemort's return, we are only as strong as we are united, as weak as we are divided. Lord Voldemort's gift for spreading discord and enmity is very great. We can fight it only by showing an equally strong bond of friendship and trust. Differences of habit and language are nothing at all if our aims are identical and our hearts are open. This is a universal truth, too, that, again, you don't need to be a person in this story, a magical being, a hero trying to save the day to believe that, to hold on to that and try to gain hope from it. He asked them to brace for the difficult times ahead. He asked them to do what the wizarding world, to this point, has not done. He asked them to remember. Because only if we remember can we learn from the past. Can we learn from those truths? Remember Cedric, he says. Here it comes. The waterworks. Ah! Remember, if the time should come when you have to make a choice between what is right and what is easy, remember what happened to a boy who was good and kind and brave because he's strayed across the path of Lord Voldemort. Remember Cedric Diggory. The enemy is not death. The enemy is hatred, and they have let it fester for too long. Too long this hatred has been allowed to populate the halls of Hogwarts in the open. No one says anything against it. Yes, we're going to go to war against Voldemort. We must. He's out here trying to kill people. But then, then, anybody going to say anything about the pure blood bullshit, about the, about the, all that stuff? Is anything going to be done about that? Are we going to fight that at all? We're going to take a stand against that? We'll see. How dare you bastardize the sacred Cedric Diggory text. I think it's one, I think it's an incredible moment. And I also think it's like one of those moments where no one can see the full board, which I think is part of what makes this so humanizing and so real. It's yes. like they're they're in this culture, so they can't see the full outlines of it all the time. No one really can. And perhaps Dumbledore's great failing is that he thinks he can. You know? Another year over. Some kisses from my my lady Fleur. <laughs> 
who quickly has become one of the faves. I love Floor. She's great. She's incredible. An iconic moment, Ron and Crumb. Just uh, can I have your autograph? How quickly do you think you used Repero to reattach the arm to the action figure? <laughs> and contemplation, thanks to Hermione for a free press, which is necessary for an informed populace and, of course, is one of the pillars of a free society. Sometimes, though, sometimes it is necessary to imprison the press summarily without trial and blackmail it in order to obtain the kind of truthful reporting that the people require. The village must be destroyed to save it sometimes. To wit, Rita Skeeter, she's gone too far, delving by hearsay into the private lives and medical records of Harry Potter and Hermione Granger. She's quoted people in said articles, Draco Malfoy in particular, who are widely known to be antagonistic to the subjects. Personally, Malfoy, a noted wizard supremacist, is prejudiced against Hermione because of her ancestry and has said so in front of numerous people on many occasions. And yet Rita's like, let me go to them and get their quotes on this story. And then has not mentioned the context in any way in her articles. That had to stop. It really did have to stop. Come on. And how was she getting on the grounds anyway to talk to them? Hermione, as we would all expect, has figured it out. Oh, Rita hasn't written anything at all since the third task, said Hermione, when the subject of Rita comes up on the train ride to King's Cross. As a matter of fact, Rita Skeeter isn't going to be writing anything at all for a while. Not unless she wants me to spill the beans on her. What beads? Oh, I don't know. How about the fact that she's an unregistered animagus, the penalty for which is, you know, some alone time in Azkaban. Uh, Hermione pulls a small sealed glass jar out of her bag from the book. She can turn, and Hermione pulled a small sealed glass jar out of her bag into a beetle. You're kidding, said Ron. You haven't, she's not, oh yes she is, (laughs) said Hermione, happily brandishing the jar at them. Inside were a few twigs and leaves and one large fat beetle. That is tough stuff. Is the beetle sucking on a quill with relish? (laughs) Again, better than Azkaban. (laughs) This is savage. It is truly savage. Truly savage. It's just kidnapping and imprisonment. Again, ask yourself what it would be like if if she wasn't in beetle form, if she was in human form, and Hermione had her in a jar (laughs) with like some the little bowl to shit in in there. (laughs) Do not cross her myoninny, guys, and all the clues fall into place. She lays it out. The beetle, always present at notable events. That insectoid buzzing that you could always hear when stuff was going on. Malfoy talking into his cupped hands. That sudden slap, remember? Mm -hmm. As Hermione caught her against the window in the hospital wing after all the revelations had happened. It's not all gloating. After an extremely fraught run-in with Malfoy on the train, the most loaded and charged Harry and Malfoy have had yet, Harry and his friends share a moment with Fred and George who explain. All that subterfuge all year, it hinged on Ludo Bagman and his vanishing leprechaun gold. Ah, remember how the gold Ron paid Harry back with disappeared? Well, so did the gold that Ludo gave to the twins for their incomparable, Shirley McGallion aided, bet cheated them out of their winnings, their life savings. Why? Well, he's indebted to the goblins, and he tried to get himself out of debt. By betting on Harry. Ah, that's why Papa Ludo has been so helpful all year trying to give Harry clues. Privately, before disembarking from the train, money on the mind, Fred and George in his presence, Harry gives the twins his winnings. He wants them to start a joke shop. That's wonderful. They're like, wow! Wow! Everyone in this story, they need the truth, yes. But they also need something else in the wars to come. Good humor and good cheer, Harry says. I don't want it and I don't need it. Extremely Jason voice. I'm rich. 
rich. I'm rich, bitch. That's what he should have said. I'm rich. We could all do with a few laughs. I've got a feeling we're going to need them more than usual before long. P.S. Don't tell Ron. (laughs) Can somebody out there uh, make a meme of Harry Potter holding two bags of gold to his ears saying, new gold who dis? (laughs) (laughs) And all Ron has is new dress robes. (laughs) Yes, Ron in his dress robes frowning. Jason? Yeah! I caught her on the windowsill in the hospital wing. Look very closely, and you'll notice the markings around her antenna are exactly like those foul glasses she wears. Oh! So put on your glasses, toss the invisibility cloak over our heads, and lead us into the restricted section. To teach us what we need to know. This is a this restricted section is a long time coming here. It is. Teach us what we need to know about anime guy. Ah, the anime guy. What's your spirit animal, guys? Well, good news. Halo. Mine's Milton. A person's Patronus can often, though not always, be their animagus form, but I'm getting ahead of myself. An animagus is a wizard or witch who can shapeshift at will into an animal without the need for a wand or an incantation of a spell. This is an advanced magical skill, which takes a lot of training and preparation to master. Like this apparition, there's also some pretty awful outcomes if not performed correctly. How does, I don't know, spending the rest of your life as a half-human, half-snake or something strike you? Not great, right? So all you amateur marauders out there, take note and make sure you get it right. The process of becoming an animagus is arduous, and I mean it. First step, a witch or wizard must keep a mandrake leaf in their mouth for an entire lunar month. And I mean inside the mouth, without swallowing or allowing any portion of the leaf to be outside the mouth during that span, which lasts from full moon to full moon. If any of those things happen, start again. (laughs) During the next visible full moon, the leaf is spit into a vial, while both the subject and the vial are standing under the direct light of that full moon. Cloudy night obscuring the moon. So sorry, guys. Start all over again. I did tell you it was difficult. To the saliva and leaf substance in the vial, the subject must then add some of their hair. Great. That's easy. A death's head moth cocoon. Okay, a little harder. Not that bad. And an amount of dew which can fill a silver teaspoon which hasn't been exposed to sunlight or human feet for a period of seven days. Okay. It's <laughs> a little tougher. <laughs> the potion must then be stored in a dark and quiet place away from anything that can disturb it, especially sunlight. Okay? How are we doing so far? Great. Next, let's loosen up those vocal cords. Get them ready, right? Some stretching. Because from sunrise to sunset, you have to chant Amado Animo Animado Animagus with the tip of your wand touched to your heart. For how long? Just until the next thunderstorm hits. <laughs> so whenever that is, a couple weeks, a couple days, a couple months, whatever that is. Sunrise to sunset, you are doing that. So there are no anime guy in Los Angeles. You are doing it. Well, listen, selecting proper geographic location is obviously very important to this. There's got to be dew and there's got to be thunderstorms, right? (laughs) If performed correctly, you're going to begin to feel a second heartbeat where the wand tip touches the chest. Okay. When that electrical storm hits, look at the vial. Potion in there should have turned blood red. If so, congratulations. One tip to the heart once again. Chant Amado Animo Animado Animagus one last time and drink it up. If you did everything right, you should feel an intense fiery pain, a powerful double heartbeat in your chest, 
and a vision of an animal will come into your mind. That will be the animal you can turn into. Congratulations, you're an animagus. Go ahead and transform. Now, imagine doing this in secret as students at Hogwarts. Shouts to the Marauders because that's fucking incredible. Wow. Really hard time. What are you guys doing? Believing Pettigrew pulled this off. I get, you chanting all day? With your, like, how? How? Also, like, not answering questions because you got a leaf in your mouth for a month? It's like, <laughs> how are they doing this? What about your clothes? What about the, you know, what about Rita's glasses? Well, all that becomes part of the animagus form, becoming fur or scales or feathers or whatever the case may be. So no need to take off that pair of dope Nikes, my friends. Wizards and witches can also transform into animals through transfiguration, as we saw when Bard Eye turned Draco into a ferret. Key differences here are transfiguration requires a wand, and the subject is then bound to the intelligence level of the particular animal, right? When you're an animagus, you retain your human consciousness. When you transfigure, you don't. Draco was literally as smart as a ferret at that point in time. So he was. So he was the same, right? <laughs> Slightly smarter than himself. A metamorph magus, like our friend Nymphadora Tonks, who we will meet soon, can also transform. Uh, girl. Their, I love her, their appearances. <laughs> but metamorphagi, metamorphagi, can transform into a wide variety of looks, but not just animals, and the ability is passed on at birth. It's not acquired like with animagi. Like with Patronuses, the animagus form is selected by some combination of a person's innate substance. Occasionally, the Patronus form can predict the animagus form, as with Minerva McGonagall, but not always. Thus, we can see the ability is really sometimes of limited utility not really worth the hardship and potential disfigurement. I mean, imagine going through all of this and then turning into like a beaver. You know, or like a something that's not useful. It would would it be like imagine finding out like oh my god like I'm a stink bug that sucks. <laughs> I don't know. Being a beetle, a beetle wound up okay. Look yeah, how yeah, that's that true. Was. It did. That I did think pretty. Find a way to put it to use no matter what. Sure. Animagi in animal form have a certain special affinity for actual animals and can even communicate with them. Recall that the Marauders became Animagi to keep Remus Lupin company when he was stricken by his werewolf transformation and that their presence calmed him. And in Prisoner of Azkaban series, Black strikes up a heartwarming relationship with Crookshanks, Hermione's cat. Crookshanks was cheated out of a house cup. A tough look for Crookshanks. Animaguses are tightly controlled by the Ministry and all Animagi must register their identities, animal form, and distinctive markings at the Animagus registry. You hearing me, Rita Skeeter? Failure to do so, head straight to Azkaban. So Sirius should have been there? Uh, <laughs> great fucking point. <laughs> now we're 12 years, though. And Animagus can be turned back into their human form against their will using whatever spell that was that Sirius and Lupin used to transform Pettigrew back at the Shrieking Shack. But we don't really know what it is. Known Animagi include the Marauders, Sirius Black, Dog, Peter Pettigrew, Rat, and James Potter, Stag, Minerva McGonagall, a cat, and Rita Skeeter, a beetle. Also, Babbity Rabbity. Yes. They're perhaps apocryphal washerwoman who could turn into a white rabbit whose story is found in Tales of Beetle the Bard. I can't wait to talk about Beetle. Beetle's, so excited yeah. for that. Stay tuned to Binge Mode Harry Potter. That's right. Wow, that was wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> oh my goodness. Jason? Yes. No spell can reawaken the dead. But the seven can reawaken our imaginations. So let's split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Goblet chapters 35 through 37, because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. Number one, 
Moody says of Dobby, I call the elf to the staff room to collect some robes for cleaning. Is this only possible because Dobby is free and thus can handle clothes? And how does the whole clothing thing work? Part of it, we know, is that you have to be the actual master of the elf in order to free him. But there are also weird workarounds and a lot of speculation here. Yeah, one of the things that's always confused me on that front is how come when Hermione is on her knitting rampage in order— we find out later from Dobby that the other house elves don't want to clean Gryffindor common room anymore because Hermione's leaving all these, you know, would-be freedom bringers around. I always took that as like the elves being superstitious. Interesting. Not wanting to. I've always been confused as to, like, does jewelry count? You know, Harry gave Creature the necklace. Oh. Is jewelry clothing? I always took it extremely literally, specifically because, like, the house elves are wearing pillowcases, or tea towels in the Hogwarts house elves case. So those are like linens yeah. that they're allowed to receive. So I always look at literally as like clothing being the differentiator between human beings and elves mm. or free elves and enslaved elves. Number two, some interesting faux glass stuff regarding Snape. First, when who Harry thinks is Moody, is confessing, and he's discussing Gillyweed, we get this description. Over his shoulder, foggy shapes were moving in the faux glass on the wall. Then... As Moody is discussing getting Harry through the maze, we get this description. The foggy shapes in the faux glass were sharpening, had become more distinct. Harry could see the outlines of three people over Moody's shoulder, moving closer and closer. Then, when Moody is stunned, quote, Harry, still staring at the place where Moody's face had been, saw Albus Dumbledore, Professor Snape, and Professor McGonagall looking back at him out of the faux glass. And then, later, quote, Snape followed him, looking into the faux glass where his own face was still visible, glaring in the room. And then... Quote, beneath the faux glass in which the reflections of Dumbledore, Snape, and McGonagall were still glaring down upon them all. This is all really notable, especially in chapters where Snape's Death Eater past really is highlighted as a focus. He is in the faux glass, a magical object that reveals, as we understand it, intent. He is positioned by this object unambiguously as aligned with Dumbledore, positioned against Lord Voldemort's servant. Many people including your binge mode hosts, clung to this detail in the wait between Half-Blood Prince and Deathly Hallows. Number three, why isn't uh, Veritaserum used more widely? This stuff looks great. You're a fan. It works. It'll shock you all to hear that Jason's a fan. (laughs) It works. We're in a war here, guys. (laughs) We're in a war. It works great. Luckily, JKR has answered this on her old website. Veritaserum works best upon the unsuspecting, the vulnerable, and those insufficiently skilled in one way or another to protect themselves against it. Barty Crash had been attacked before the potion was given to him and was still very groggy. Otherwise, he could have employed a range of measures against the potion. Ah! He might have sealed his own throat and faked a declaration of innocence, transformed the potion into something else before it touched his lips, or employed oculumency against its effects. In other words... Just like every other kind of magic within the books, Veritaserum is not infallible. I love this. Me too. As some wizards can prevent themselves being affected and others cannot, it's an unfair and unreliable tool to use at a trial. Sirius might have volunteered to take the potion had he had been given the chance, but he was never offered it. No trial. Mr. Crouch, senior power mad and increasingly unjust in the way he was treating suspects, threw him into Azkaban on the admittedly rather, it was very convincing, testimony of many eyewitnesses. The sad fact is that even if Sirius had told the truth under the influence of the potion, Mr. Crouch would still have insisted he was using trickery to render himself immune to it. That's true. Absolutely, I believe that. What a fabulous explanation. That is a great explanation. Also, just that line about how 
this in particular and magic in general not infallible. I love so that. important. I love that. The, whole, I, the story works yes. because of that. Number four. One of the things that Fudge says to Dumbledore during their showdown is, quote, there aren't many who'd let you hire werewolves or keep Hagrid or decide what to teach your students without reference to the ministry. But if you're going to work against me, we will see in Order of the Phoenix, Fudge no longer allowing these things as Dolores Umbridge will be placed at Hogwarts <laughs> School by the ministry. And once there, she will, one educational decree at a time, rip control of the school away from Dumbledore and give it to the ministry. Horrible. What a villain. Inc- what an incredible villain, actually. I'm excited to talk about her. Man. Uh, number five, Barty Jr. says, I will be honored beyond all Death Eaters. I will be his dearest, his closest supporter. Closer than a son. Or did you mean daughter? <laughs> Barty Jr. shouts to my cursed child heads. Not kidding. It's just, <laughs> it is so funny because you read that for the first time and it's so odd to yeah. in any way think of Voldemort in like a fatherly light, but it just, you know, it's just imagine that snake. Imagine like they're sitting around talking about like killing all the muggles and exterminating the half floods. And then like, you know, Voldemort's talking about this and then Bella comes in. And he's like, can you change the diaper this time? <laughs> Bella comes in and, and Voldemort's like, are you wearing perfume? Or something? <laughs> Did you do your hair? What's, what's happening here? <laughs> Number six. Fudge says, you'll forgive me, Dumbledore, but I've never heard of a cursed scar acting as an alarm bell before. Well, good reminder from the least likely of sources here that Harry Potter and his scar are uh, not exactly normal, are they? Trust Fudge to inadvertently give us yet another Horcrux clue. This is a normal scar. Find a new slant. Number seven. (laughs) Bardai Moody says... Of Karkaroth. I doubt he will get far. The Dark Lord has ways of tracking his enemies. Crouch was partly wrong. Karkaroth does survive on the run for a year, but he's also partly right. Karkaroth gets got by the Death Eaters eventually, as we'll learn later. Should have turned into a love seat as my dude Slughorn did. (laughs) (laughs) I love Slughorn. Mal? Yeah. He wanted me to bring him back. Bring me back into a world with no winners. But name a champion we must. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or creature that compelled us the most. And today, we're dishing out last-minute points and awarding the House Cup, too. Albus Dumbledore. And it is about time. One would say it's a little late in the series, perhaps, to award him a winner. But, like, listen, Dumbledore shows up late. But when he shows up, he shows up. And he showed up! One of the things I love so much about these chapters, but really Goblet in general, is that it's really the first time that Harry and thus readers understand what makes Dumbledore Dumbledore. That power, that strength, that command, but also the humanity. Those moments, those vulnerable moments where his voice breaks and you see the gleam, but you don't understand why. So many clues about the future, so many clues about the past. And it is... Fair to say that the Remember Cedric Diggory speech is one of the most iconic moments iconic. in the entire series. Nailed he it with that one. is not afraid to challenge Fudge, to challenge the ministry, to speak truth to power. I agree. And that speech is iconic. That's why I wish he would speak more. Man, you got to be given more of these speeches, Dumbledore, because that was great. That set the stakes for what's to come. We have to band together as people try to divide us with hatred and fear. Look to your friends, find comfort and security in them, and let's go and fight evil. 
listen, when Dumbledore made that speech, I'm ready to I'm ready to go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's Thank go you, Dumbledore. Finally. Let's go see a Giants game. <laughs> well, friends. Yes. Our master's plan worked. He has returned to power and binge mode will be honored by him beyond <laughs> the dreams of podcasters. Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer That's and right. researcher, will not be honored as they are currently on vacation and have abandoned us. But Evan Campbell. Who will mug the snake? Who filled in in their stead will. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today. Maybe not, fun might not be the right word. Somber episode, but we hope that you enjoyed your time with us today. That you are as excited as we are for the rest of this journey and that you will join us again tomorrow. We will be discussing the Goblet of Fire film adaptation. Tough one. Boy. <laughs> Until then, remember binge mode. Remember, if the time should come when you have to make a choice between what is right and what is easy, remember what happened to a podcast that was good and kind and brave because it strayed across the path of the watch. Just kidding. Of Lord Voldemort. <laughs> remember binge mode. Dumbledore, this is preposterous. I tell you, Coney Fudge, he is back. Voldemort is back. Harry here witnessed it. Barty Crouch Jr., his very presence here in these halls uh, speaks to it. Barty himself will tell you what has happened. We have the dead body of Cedric Diggory. Your own head of the Department of International Magical Cooperation's son was seen to be a Death Eater. He himself was put under the Imperius Curse and now he's dead. He's just a bone in Hagrid's yard. Or was. Until he was used to raise Voldemort again. What more do you need to say? Oh, come on. What? First of all, a bone? And you're going to believe uh, who? Harry Potter? And Barty Crouch Jr.? Oh, yeah. Ah. Uh, Barty Jr. Ah. Uh, listen. About Barty Jr. It's like... I, you know, he, he was he broke out of Azkaban, and so it was like you got to bring him back to Azkaban. Uh, so I had one of the guards come, <laughs> one of the Dementors. Yeah, one of the. I thought I said no Dementors on school grounds. I he did say that, and I forgot that you said that. I was looking at some old emails, and I was like, oh yeah, he said that. But that was like months ago, a long time, and I just forgot. Anyway, uh, the Dementor sucked out Barty's soul, and it's like, we can't. He's just done. 